Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Alex Kutz, co-founder and CEO of IndieGov, a constituent relations platform that's raised over $38 million in funding. Alex, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. Yeah. So hello, everybody. My name is Alex. I have been basically spending my entire career building and scaling tech startups. I started off in kind of a product and design side of things. I was a UX designer. I was a product manager at one point among a bunch of other things, and uh, started building and scaling other people's companies and founded companies of my own. About 10 years or so ago, I got super interested in civic stuff, which we'll talk about in a minute, which kind of led me to Indica. But I've also advised a bunch of companies in the past, both big companies and small companies. But my heart really lies with doing cause-focused work in startups where there's a very, and this is a very complex topic, but viable business model to sustain the good that the company creates, which is what Indica is. Uh, So that's always been my path. Amazing. And is there a specific notable company that you've worked with or you've built that our listeners may know? Oh, well, Indigo is the most notable, of course. But uh, there's a bunch that they may have heard of in the past. One was a company, if you bought a computer anytime between the time of probably uh, the mid-90s all the way to the early 2000s, it probably came preloaded with a, a weather application called Weatherbug, which was a subsidiary of Earth Networks. And so that had a couple hundred million downloads of applications that that company had done. So that one I've done a civic tech company with Sean Parker, uh, a bunch of really smart, talented folks in the Bay Area that was meant to be a political social graph called Brigade. In the Bay Area, that one got around quite a bit. But uh, Indigo is by far and above my pride and joy, the crown jewel. <laughs> nice. Amazing. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and CEO. Is there a specific CEO that you admire the most? And if so, who is it? And what do you admire about them? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You know, candidly, I never really had role models, which is a weird thing, other than my parents, who absolutely are my role models. But not because that, you know, I think I'm too good for role models or anything like that. But I think in my life, in my founder journey, I've always kind of felt very alone in my path, which sounds like kind of a lonely, sad thing, but it isn't. It's just the kind of way that I look at it. And I always kind of felt that a lot of folks, not everybody, but a lot of folks over-index for other people's experiences and kind of graft those experiences on their lives and their companies in a way that doesn't always help them as much as I think they'd like them to. And so I would say generally, no. There are a bunch of people that I really respect and that have done amazing things in companies. I think I'm a big fan of design-focused founders who really deeply understand a core problem and then design a solution for it. Empathy first. I think there's a lot of my friends who founded companies to do that kind of thing. There's folks that you know are involved with Indiegogo, like one of our, our lead investors, board member Bradley Tusk. He's a really interesting guy. I respect him a ton. And I would say this if he was sitting in the room. He's dedicated an enormous amount of his own fortune and time to solving problems that he thinks are important without a dramatic expectation of return for a lot of it, which I think is incredibly virtuous. So anybody who's sacrificing for something that they believe in is something that I look up to. And there's a ton of people in my life that do that. Amazing. I just finished reading the book from Bradley Tusk called The Fixer. Did you ever read that? Oh, yeah. That's a great book, man. That's a lot of really good knowledge in there. He knows his stuff. Yeah, he's fascinating. The work that he did with Uber, it was uh, it was fun reading about it. You know, because like years ago, I had experienced some of that stuff. So it's really a fascinating book to hear behind the scenes what was really happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in that book, and I definitely recommend people pick it up. It's a topic that interests them. But 
you know, he speaks very frankly. And, you know, having known Bradley really well and become friends with Bradley, I can tell you he talks like he writes in person, super frank, super direct. He probably uses slightly more expletives in person than I remember being in the book. But, but yeah, that's a, that's a great one. And outside of The Fixer, is there a specific book that's had a, a major impact on you as a founder? This can be a business book or just a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. Yeah, you know, I don't really read business books. I, I try and stay away from them as a general rule. And that's a complex topic maybe for another time. But there are lots of books that are non-business related that have been really impactful to me. But for the most part, I think most books that I've read, even really good books, I kind of pick, you know, one or two things to walk away with. And those kind of stick with me. And I ruminate over those. A couple examples. There's one book, I believe called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth by uh, a Canadian astronaut, Chris Hadfield. There was one part of that book that I love that he said that I think about constantly about how astronauts are taught to work the problem in NASA speak, which is basically a translation for, in his words, descending one decision tree after another, methodically looking for a solution until you run out of oxygen. I love that idea. That when there's a problem that comes up, there it's not an emotional response or a visceral response that we want. We want to just think about the logic of it, go down the decision tree, figure it out until we run out of time, which I really thought was great. Another one that I love, there's a married couple, Will and Ariel Durant, who are both individually very fascinating people, but wrote an unbelievable amount of history, historical reviews of pretty much every topic you can imagine. Very, very prolific Pulitzer Prize winners, or at least Will was, I'm not sure about Ariel, but really fantastic. And anything they wrote, I love. There's one book in particular called Lessons of History that basically runs through everything that they've learned in their entire you know, 50 plus year career of doing historical analysis of humanity. And there's a lot of really interesting things in there. One other one that I would recommend is The Next 100 Years, I believe is the name of the book, which kind of talks about macro-level trends that determine where society goes over time and how countries and you know populations evolve. And one thing that was fascinating about that is it really prompted me to, to zoom out a little bit and look at how civilizations progress through these like macro trends that can't really be changed easily through things like politics. And so as an example population density and aging changes over a country will actually determine much more of its future and what it does and what it doesn't do, what it's capable of or what it isn't, than a bill that is released or uh, a particular social movement. So that book was really interesting too. The only business book I recommend is one called Play Bigger, which I read probably about five or six years ago now, maybe more, but it made an impression on me. It was about category definition and how companies kind of create categories and become category kings or queens coming out of that. And that was... That was a really fascinating one. Yeah, I love Play Bigger. And yeah, we're big into category design and category creation. So good to hear uh, you've read that book. I have to dig a bit deeper into the, the first thing you said there, though, that you don't read business books. So we don't have to spend too much time on that. But I'd love to understand you know, why is it that you don't read business books? Yeah, so I feel like <laughs> I feel like I sound like a very ardent contrarian uh, with a lot of these questions, but I don't think that I am one. But really, the thing is, you know, for those of you who your audience who started companies before or built things from scratch, and this is true in a lot of walks of life, and maybe it's true for parenting as well. I don't have kids yet. I hope to one day. But I think when we look at the advice of others or we over-index on the advice of others or their experiences, we try and graph those experiences onto our life, hoping that we can enact what they did kind of verbatim. And I think in many, many cases, that doesn't work because life has to be lived. We have to figure out things on our own to some degree. And I do believe we are alone with the problem at the end of the day in many ways. But, you know, I think the other one is that when we read business books, we, in many cases, rob ourselves of our ability to really think through problems on our own and first order reason from the ground up, you know, the data that I'm ingesting, how do I feel about that? What does that mean to me? And then, you know, try and figure out an answer to it. And so I've always just been petrified 
one of my greatest fears in life is not having kind of creative control over my own existence, kind of being other people or, or kind of taking someone else's path as opposed to figuring out my own. So I think it's probably an intense rebelliousness. So I don't necessarily recommend that for other people. I do think it's genuinely useful to read business books. They can give you ideas or things to think about that may not come naturally to you, but uh, I have a healthy dose of skepticism for them. That's fascinating. I like the contrarian view there. Now let's switch gears and let's dive into what you're actually building here. So can you talk us through the origin story behind the company? Sure, yeah. So about 12 years ago or so, I very much fell out of love with the Bay Area. I kind of poked my head up and I was in San Francisco at the time kind of building and again, scaling companies. And and I, I put my head up and looked around and what I realized was that the Bay Area had become, or maybe always was, the World Olympics of value creation rationalization. There were all these companies that, you know, acted like they were doing something monumentally, you know, beneficial for humanity. But in reality, technology is not a, a force for good. It isn't a force for bad either. It's just an engine of convenience. It's an accelerant. That's all that it does. And so I have a real problem with people who, who build technology for technology's sake. It's one of the reasons I've had such issues with the AR, VR world, with crypto and blockchain and all these things, because you get people that are overly excited about technology, and then it becomes a solution in search of a problem mentality, right? I have this thing. I really want to figure out a way to use it. What could I possibly use it on? That's fundamentally a broken way to look at starting companies and technological businesses, the idea with technology is that you have to really deeply understand a problem that matters to you personally, become the world's leading expert on that problem, verify that there are enough people that have that problem and that they can't solve it themselves and that they're willing to pay for that solution and that the market is big enough to sustain a business, especially if you're doing a venture-funded company. You got to make sure that there's enough of a market to justify a $100 million ARR business and above. And so... That's not what I saw in the Bay Area. I saw exactly the opposite. Again, the solution in search of a problem. And so I saw these companies doing, you know, as my employees have heard me say a thousand times, Olympic level contortions to rationalize what they're doing to make it seem as though they're creating societal value. And so not to pick on Zynga, but there were people at Zynga at the time, you know, before its liquidity event, that were like, we're doing something that matters. We're making people's lives better. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for 90% of companies that say that, maybe a higher percentage. And so that really freaked me out and gave me a bit of an existential crisis where I went camping actually with the CFO of uh, IndiGov now, a good friend of mine, John, I've known for a very long time. And I thought about it in the woods while we were going camping and had this crisis. I was like, well, well, shoot, you know, how do I take all the things that I've learned, you know, UX design, product stuff, sales, business development, and apply it to a problem that is meaningful to me that I think can actually help humanity in some way. And so what I came down to was that there were only two things that humanity had invented outside of the profit motive for the betterment of society at scale. One was religion, and I wasn't going to become a priest, at least not at this point in my life. And uh, the second was uh, government. And so I had never really been interested in government before. I don't watch the news. I'm not particularly interested in politics, but I am intensely interested in democracy, what it is supposed to do and what it stands for. I think a lot of people, and this is a common trope, or something that, you know, Gen Z and millennials like to say that democracy is the least worst system of government in the world. I think that's short-sighted. I actually think it's incredible. It is an enormous societal achievement to create democratic governmental rule, as opposed to autocracies or oligarchies or other things. And we do have a democracy in this country, and it is a very precious and fragile thing. And it requires every generation to invest in it. Otherwise, we are no more than one generation away from losing it. And so I looked at that problem, and I was like, okay, well, how can technology knowing that it is not a force for good, knowing that it is just an engine of convenience, how can technology help rebuild the user experience of government? 
And I started with user experience because I was a user experience designer and I was a citizen and an immigrant to this country. My family comes from Greece and I'm intensely patriotic. This country has given my family unbelievable things. I love this country. I believe in what it stands for, truly at a very deep visceral level. And so I started thinking about that. So I started building civic engagement applications to rebuild the experience of democracy. So, you know, it sucks to read a bill. I tried to read the healthcare bill, Obamacare at the time, and it was, you know, 3,500 pages of pork and legal speak and all these things. And it was completely unintelligible to the average citizen. And so I was like, all right, well, how do we make that easier? How do we make it, you know, accessible to most people? So I designed interfaces to do that, help people read bills and reach out to electeds. And I founded a company in that space and another company and another company. And through companies I founded and worked at and experiences I designed, I'd sent roughly 75 or 80 million messages to elected representatives through these apps. But the problem is the users that would do this through my apps would never get a response. And so that really pissed me off. And so I started flying from San Francisco back to D.C. and just randomly walking into congressional offices, which was bizarre at the time and was shocking to me that that's even possible, by the way, that they let you do that. But that's, you know, they're the people's buildings and that's okay. And so I started walking in and talking to staffers like, hey, like, so what do you guys do here? What happens? Like when a message comes in, what happens? And they were using these, these very old legacy systems that look nothing like the types of tools that private market companies would have to manage a similar level of communication. And so I went on this journey, this like quest to redesign those systems and build a true constituent management system so that now when a constituent reaches out to them, no matter what channel it comes in from, from social media, phone calls, emails, web forms, refer to another office, it gets triaged, organized, then the office can write a meaningful response to that. So the constituent's getting a personal response from a human that goes back to them. And we are able now to do that, again, across 44 or so states, almost 200 million Americans, hundreds of millions of messages and data points and things on a yearly basis. We are increasing the responsiveness of government, making people have a better response. And so we started off in Congress. Uh, we sold to them. They were our first launch customer. And then it was state and local governments. And you know, we expanded across the US. And so to put a bow on it, the mission of the company, the reason that we founded it is because we believe in democracy. We believe that it needs help. And we believe that technology can help in specific ways that improve outcomes for constituents. And that's exactly what we've done. So it's been a, a long, very painful journey. There's a lot of subtext that I edited out for that for just time's sake. But at some point, I will give the most depressing TED talk you've ever heard about government tech transformation. It is a very difficult process, put it that way. <laughs> and if we're just looking at Congress, for example, just to have an idea of like the scale of the messages they receive, how many is the average congressman getting per month? Is it 100? Is it 100,000? Like, I don't, wouldn't even know where to begin there with like what a number would be. Yeah, it's interesting. It varies heavily based on level of government, the leadership office, so on and so forth. So, you know, a leadership office like the Speaker of the House could be getting over 100,000 messages a week between phone calls, faxes, emails, all kinds of things, just an unbelievable number. The average member of Congress probably gets somewhere between three and 5,000 messages a week. But then you have to actually sit down and they have average constituent sizes of around, you know, six to 800,000 people. And so they're getting about, you know, three to 5,000 a week from that group. But interestingly enough, 80 to 90% of their incoming message volume is not actually coming from constituents directly. It's coming through advocacy organizations who are paid to wallpaper offices with thousands of identical messages to affect legislative outcomes. And if I was a constituent, I knew that that really pissed me off. So I'm like, well, you guys should be responding to me. Like I'm your constituent, not, you know, a nonprofit or a lobbying firm or something like that. But we help them manage that glut of automated stuff as well. Got it. 
And when you say messages, does that count, you know, like someone just tweeting at a congressman as well? Or are those like direct messages, direct emails, things like that? Yeah, so that number is primarily emails and web form messages, and then automated messages through an API that Congress is available. But that also includes social media, tweets, Facebook messages, Instagram messages. I don't think most members of Congress are or should be on Tinder. But if that was an avenue and people want to reach out through that, they should have everything available to them. And what percentage of those typically get a response? Um, And what type of engagement have you seen change as a result of using your platform? Are there any numbers you can share there? Sure, yeah. So we run tests with members of Congress before Indigov was in existence. And we sent the same message to every member of Congress. We've done this a couple of times to gauge average constituent response times to see, okay, we send in a middle-of-the-road message. You should have a response to this. Maybe it's about COVID or some dominant topic. From a validated address in someone's district, what is the response time? Before us, what we saw was only one-third of Congress responded at all within 130 days, one-third of congressional offices. And of the ones that did, the average constituent response time was 83.8 days. That's insane. Imagine reaching out to Toyota or Dyson vacuum cleaner, go, oh, my vacuum cleaner exploded, and I need some help here, and you get a response four or five months later or not at all. That is a democracy that isn't listening, doesn't care about me, isn't engaged with me. And so, of course, I'm going to walk away with an incredibly low approval rating of Congress if I have an experience like that. And if, you know, thousands of people are having those with each individual office a week, imagine what that does for, you know, national confidence in the organization. And so in our platform, people get a 100% response rate. So everybody gets a response by design and they get it on average in between eight and 10 hours after they send it. And so if people are using Indigo, the response is very quick and it's definite. We can then even send automated follow-up messages to say, hey, you know, did we help you? Did we answer your question? And we can filter information back up to the representative to say, hey, you have a, you know, six out of 10 approval rating with constituents based on your responses or an eight out of 10. And we give them numbers that they can optimize against with their staff. Fascinating. And when you were starting the company, did you get a lot of pushback from friends and investors trying to say, you know, maybe go to a space where there's more money at face value? Like, did you have that type of pushback that you had to overcome? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wish I could use a word as gentle as pushback. (laughs) I think it was all worse than that. So I had venture funds and and individual investors, GPs at funds who had made a lot of money with me in the past. And it given me the kind of second time founder pledge of like, hey, blank check, come back to me. You know, whenever you got an idea, we'd love to work with you again. We'll figure it out. And so I went back to all those people. And there were several when I started Indigov. And everybody said, we love you. Anything with government. We don't know anything about government. We can't invest in government. We can't do it. Now, this is before Palantir and before the numerous unicorn companies that are in the GovTech space that exist now. But, you know, at the time, it was really greenfield stuff, blue sky stuff for venture funds. And so, you know, venture capital funds generally, not all, but generally are pack hunters. They, I think the, the analysis or metaphor analogy I've heard in the past, it's like they're like penguins uh, standing on the edge of an iceberg, waiting for another penguin to jump in to see if they get eaten by a seal or a shark or something. And, you know, if one penguin jumps in, they're fine and the other will jump in. And so that was very much the case with GovTech. And so, you know, to your point about that book earlier, we mentioned Play Bigger, category definition. It is a uniquely difficult challenge to raise venture capital for a category-defining company. Venture capitalists will say that they love that, but the truth is it's really hard to evaluate risk premiums if they don't have a proxy of other people's participation. And so, yeah, it was, it was extremely difficult at the beginning, although I'll say, you know, we were revenue generating and had significant traction and growth before we raised any money for the company, which made that pitch a lot easier. We found some kind of visionary investors at the beginning of the company that really helped us validate the market to other people and things snowballed after that. But uh, 
yeah, I mean, figuring out an angle approach in the beginning was, to put it mildly, stressful. I can imagine. And are you seeing that change now? I know it's a bit of a different space, but I've been following Andrill a lot and Josh Wolf at Lux Capital, who's you know betting big on defense tech. And you know, they're all trying to really push hard for Silicon Valley and the tech world to be open to working with defense, open to working with government. And it sounds like it's at least making some progress. Are you seeing that or is it still the same as it was back in, say, 2018? Yeah, we are. I mean, we get a lot of inbound interest from venture funds, you know, every day. And I kind of forward them all to my CFO. He does the first round of kind of evaluation. But, you know, we have a lot of blue chip funds who are reaching out to us that we'd never talked to before just saying, hey, like, we're looking for spaces that are not absolutely on fire. Because if you look, it's really hard to get excited about e-com or media or automation or blockchain or crypto or any of the things that people were getting really excited about a couple of years ago. Government and our market in particular is a subset of government, the DOD to some degree as well. Is one of the only markets I can imagine that's completely insulated from market and geopolitical instability. When there are economic recessions or there's significant, you know, turmoil in labor markets or capital markets, government spends more. And that's true with our customers. And so we've posted really healthy triple-digit growth every single year of this company. And it was really started, in essence, we started scaling during COVID when every other company was dying. And so, you know, we throw that proof point out to investors and they go, oh, okay, that's kind of incredible. And so we're doing a lot of informational conversations. I think the next time that we open up a fundraise, we'll probably get preempted. And I will say as well, just given our growth and traction, we were preempted in all of our fundraising rounds before we actually went out to raise a round. And so we were always kind of price takers or to some degree price makers, I guess. But we've been very, very fortunate, put it that way. And because of the space you're in, do you have to be careful who you allow to invest and to be part of the cap table. That's something I was just reading in an article on the information with Josh Wolf, where he was saying that he needs to be very careful in who invests in his fund, because if he's investing in defense tech, if it you know traces back to you know, Saudi Arabia, then it can you know, potentially create some conflicts there that he has to try to avoid. So do you have to manage something similar where you have to be very careful in who the investors are and who their LPs are? Oh, yeah, big time. If ever we get serious or we receive a term sheet that we're serious about considering in any of the rounds that we've done, we do a full analysis of all the LPs and ask for documentation for everybody. And, you know, part of that comes from, and I, it, we're very closely connected to the defense world in the sense that our first money in at Indigov was a bunch of the, the founders of Palantir. And they've been an amazing resource for us. I focused on them and sought them out because of their experience in GovTech. And, you know, we had a couple of questionable funds that were really enthusiastic and, you know, great valuations, really favorable terms, all those things in a couple rounds. And I kind of presented them to, you know, some of the Palantir crew and was like, hey, listen, you know, these folks take some, you know, non-US money. You know, this fund takes some Hong Kong money, not mainland China, but Hong Kong. How do we feel about that? And in every situation where it was anyone outside the US, basically, or anyone from an unfriendly country, put it that way, the Palantir crew was like, yeah, we never would have taken money uh, from any of these folks. We would have absolutely cut that off of the head. And so we've been really disciplined about it, but you got to do diligence and you have to ask a lot of questions that the companies typically don't ask with venture funds. And I'll say too, you know, when taking money from an unfriendly country can kill your business, you have to have a level of diligence with investors that is not normal for like a run-of-the-mill, you know, consumer product company or, you know, a, a hardware company or something like that. So, so yeah, it was a big consideration for us. Makes a lot of sense. And can you talk to me about the sales process of selling to Congress? You know, what does that procurement process look like? How does that sale begin? Who's involved in the decision making? What's that process look like? Because I think most of our listeners are in enterprise, B2B tech, 
So they'll have you know an understanding there, but I would guess not many of them have sold into Congress. So if you can enlighten us there, that would be great. Yeah, well, you know, Congress is a small market, so I don't know if that is super useful to a lot of your listeners in the sense that you know they have a huge amount of money. They, the most they spend on any individual tech product is what we do. There's not a whole lot of market for other folks, but I'll kind of zoom out to a high level some, some thematic things that we've seen that, that were big. So if you're ever doing extremely large bureaucratic sales, whether to a government agency or let's say a Fortune 10 company or Fortune 100 company or something like that, my opinion, you have to look at the sales process as both an exercise in networking, but also de-risking. And so with Congress and with elected representatives and you know large companies, I've been doing you know enterprise SaaS for, for a large part of my career, you always go top down if you can. It's really hard to go top down. You have to build the relationships and the capital in order to be able to access those people in, at an angle of approach that's actually going to create a productive conversation. So get the right people on your cap table, get the right advisors in, pick the right law firm, get the right employees, all those things to kind of set that up. But you kind of go top down. If you sell the person in government in particular at the top, then everybody else afterwards and kind of the lower levels takes it very seriously and evaluates in a much different way than if you go bottom up. I've seen a lot of GovTech companies fail when they go bottom up. But again, much easier said than done. Aside from that, on the de-risking side, you know, we focus, and I focus really heavily with Congress on creating zones of innovation. Okay, like, because we were the first cloud vendor that Congress had ever approved for anything like what we do, which was a gigantic leap for them from a security posture perspective. So you know, we're like, okay, well, we don't want to do a full organizational rollout, but we want to do zones of innovation or lighthouse offices that will adopt this technology inside of the legislature, and they will sign a risk assessment or risk acknowledgement that they understand they're using a new type of technology that hasn't been used before, and here are the risks as the organization sees them. And so we kind of got our customers online first who were bought in, and then we worked the organization to create a pathway to create those lighthouse zones of innovation, and then a risk assessment and adoption and acceptance process. And then we went live in a heavily monitored environment where we were giving regular updates to our partners in the congressional side regularly. But the last thing that I'll say on that, and I think this is particularly important with government, you know, government employees aren't often the heroes in most Michael Bay movies that you watch, right? <laughs> They're ancillary characters. And I think the brand of government has been tarnished over the past, you know, 50 to 100 years, or maybe it always was in this country, given our kind of endemic distrust of authority figures, which is a big part of what it is to be American. But, you know, they're really hardworking, super patriotic individuals who want to do innovative, great stuff. You just have to remember, and this is true in large enterprises too, they are not rewarded for it. They're rewarded for de-risking things and ensuring continuity of service, not trying new stuff that makes people's lives X percent better or the organization perform better. Government in particular is a Fortune 1 company. It is not going out of business. A new company, a startup, has to adopt technology in order to survive, cut costs, access new revenue. Government's not going anywhere. And if it does, we're all screwed anyway for a lot of other reasons. And so it's just a totally different paradigm for sales. You have to understand that culture before you go into it. That's super fascinating. And are there any other numbers or metrics you can share that just demonstrate the traction and growth that you're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, from a contractual perspective, we're always tight-lipped about who our customers are. That's partially for security's sake. Also, it's just what we agree to with our customers to protect their kind of identities and things like that. So I, I can't give you specifics on individual customers, but I will say over the past several years, we've expanded from Congress to state government, from governors to state legislatures, to mayors, counties, city councils. AGs, DAs, pretty much every level of government, every type of customer you can imagine. We are now currently serving thousands and thousands of staffers and elected representatives every single day. 
as daily active unique users of the platform that have unbelievable usage. We're talking like high 90s utilization rate of the platform because they live in our tool every day is required to do their job. We are ingesting billions of data points and messages on a yearly basis across the U.S. And so we can help members and representatives understand what their constituents are reaching out about. And again, as I mentioned before, we're in 44 or so states serving 200 million Americans. And so that kind of triple digit growth year over year over year is compounded in a really beautiful way for us. And if you zoom out into the future, will you eventually take this to other countries or is there a big enough market in the U.S. or would you only ever want to focus on the U.S. just due to your mission? I mean, we definitely see a market in other countries. I think, you know, the U.S. is a very, very mature, extremely complex democracy. We have 570,000 elected officials in the U.S. And so it's a very, very big market to build a multi-billion dollar company. And we don't have to expand outside the U.S. to do that, but we want to. We believe the cause of furthering democracy is not purely an American pursuit. It is a global pursuit. And if you look at the, you know, broad-based data, if you have a Pew Research and some of the other large think tanks that have put out data on this, democracy is in a real difficult state globally. I think the actions of Vladimir Putin with the invasion in Ukraine have pulled a lot of people back over to liberalism and democracy because they brought onto the center stage the costs of autocratic regimes and and lack of checks and balances and and things like that. But I think democracy is still very much under threat. So we definitely soft-circled some countries that we think make sense for expansion. We've had some countries actually reach out to us based on contacts they've had with other customers that are using our software. But at the moment, we are uh, bleeding red, white, and blue over here. We've got a lot of work to do here before we expand. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I'd love to talk a bit more about your efforts in terms of category creation. So what's the name of the category? Is it constituent relationship management? Or how do you define the name of the category? Yeah, for us, it's broader. We talk about it as that we are building an operating system for representative democracy. If you look at democracy in and of itself, it is a service delivery and communication-based government. An autocratic regime is not, right? In China, if you've got a problem with the FDA, maybe there's a help email you can send a message to, but it does not come with the expectation that you're going to get a meaningful response or change as a result of any of those things, no matter how many people reach out. And so in the U.S., it is starkly different. Bureaucrats, elected representatives, lifelong government employees are enormously responsive to public sentiment. It is the God that they worship. And if anybody listening has watched too much Veep or House of Cards or you know, whatever show you've watched on politics and you believe anything other than that, you are sorely mistaken. And the media has manipulated an incorrect understanding of what democracy actually is. These people go to sleep every day, and wake up every day terrified about a scandal or, you know, constituents being angry about this thing or that thing that affects public perception of them, which is how the system is designed to work. And so the constituent communication aspect of it and service delivery is a huge part of it. To put a ball on that part of it, really smart elected representatives will tell me, and I've heard this a thousand times in a thousand different ways, that you get in office through politics, but you stay in through constituent service. But that's not just true of electeds, it's true of government agencies and municipal offices and all kinds of things. So that's a very big market. But when we talk about the reason we say operating system for representative democracy, it's not just about communication. It's about all the things that happen up and downstream from that communication, which makes that market deceptively large. And there's a million ways to expand that. So It starts with communication and expands to everything that's required to get that communication out and resolve those issues fully with the people that reach in. And every founder listening and every founder that I interview has aspirations to create a category. I think that's the cool thing to do now in in tech and, and everyone wants to pursue it, but it's really hard. And I think you touched on that 
in the earlier part of the interview where you mentioned you know some of the investors you know pushing back a little bit on that so can you talk us through what some of those early conversations were like with investors when you were talking about your aspirations of creating a category sure so you know i don't think that investors would talk about it with that parlance right or at least the objections wouldn't come and like well i don't think you can create a category they typically come with concerns about the TAM or an unvalidated TAM because they haven't seen 55 other companies do exactly what you're trying to do to believe that the market is there. And so if I have to explain to someone, hey, like how many elected representatives do you think there are in the US? I'll ask an investor, like, I don't know, you know, 20, 30,000. No, 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 it's almost 20 times that, right? It's almost 600,000, almost 30 times that. And so it's, it's an enormous number of elected representatives. Okay, great. But, you know, I still don't understand enough. Okay, great. Well, let's take the state of New Jersey. Like, what's the government look like in the state of New Jersey between all the municipalities and cities and this and that? And you have to kind of walk through every single step of it with folks to help them understand it. But the problem is that is very expensive in a fundraising conversation. And so my strong recommendation is come up with metaphors that can help drive home the value proposition for someone who doesn't care about your mission and isn't interested in it, isn't going to sit down and do the time. I think we had a lot of funds say no to us, not because they didn't believe in our traction or the business per se, but because they didn't have the time or resources to invest in understanding the market. And we've had some of those funds come back around later as we continue to sell. But what that objection typically looks like is, all right, well, you know, we'd love to see you break into a couple of these markets and validate it and then come back to us. And then at that point, we'd love to take a look, right? And so we do that and we come back and they're still like, well, you know, we'd love to see you expand more into these markets beyond that. You know, come back to us after that. We do that. And they come back again. Like, well, you know, we'd love to see a little bit different types of, you know, maybe revenue expansion or this or that with these specific types of customers. And in reality, as a founder, you have to say, that's actually not them having a problem with the space. That's a lack of conviction about investing in a new market they don't understand. Stop wasting your time with them. I think the goal is to look for people who thematically and from a mission perspective, understand what you're trying to accomplish and then double click on them, invest in them, work through their networks to find more people like them and expand and consulting over time. It is not unusual for a category-defining company to, as opposed to going the institutional route, which may be better for really heavily over-indexed spaces, doing a syndicate of high net worth individuals who believe at the beginning, and then later doing the institutional round afterwards, which is a non-traditional way of going. You know, I've had companies of mine that were lead investors like Sequoia and Canaan and a lot of big like, you know, blue chip venture funds that I have a lot of respect for they may not be the best place to go to define a new category unless you have a partner there that really religiously believes in it. So I would also say, look for intellectual capital that's been produced or articles written by venture funds about your space or anything that is closely related to it. That tends to be a really good spot. And you mentioned Lux Capital before. You know, that guy's writing it. And I mean, he's been in the press all over the course of this week in the past several weeks. He's putting out a lot of intellectual capital, right? But he's not the only one that's done that. There's a lot of other funds that have done that kind of thing. Look to them. The last thing on the category definition I'd say is, you know, the market and the customer speaks volumes about you. And so one of the reasons Bradley uh, invested in Indigov was he knew a lot of elected representatives during the diligence process and said, all right, well, I want you to pitch this to all my buddies for elected representatives. And everybody that he put us in touch with bought the product in the diligence process for our Series A. And so I've never, I've never actually gotten customers from a diligence process. But that was pretty amazing. And so that made me think that was super useful. And one other point, there are different types of venture funds. I think a, a founder really has to understand the taxonomy of venture funds that are out there. There are the large, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus billion dollar multi-stage funds. There are the smaller kind of follow-on funds that have to syndicate deals. There are the early stage. When I say early stage, I mean, you know, they're on their first or second fund or something like that. Really early venture capital funds 
where they really have to grind it out because they have to build their networks so they can get deal flow. And so the earlier, like first and second fund cycle funds actually can be really useful for you filling out a round because they have a ton of friends. And so maybe don't go directly to Sequoias and the, you know, Andreessen's and everybody else in the world, go to a smaller, you know, hundred or a couple hundred million dollar fund, get them on board and then have them set up meetings for you with validated friends they have at other funds and things like that. So think really hard about your angle of approach. You have to when you're building a category, much more so, again, than over-indexed sectors. That's super, super useful tactical advice that I'm sure the listeners will appreciate. I know we are almost up on time, so I'll wrap with one final question here. Let's zoom out into the future. Let's say five years from now, what does the company look like? So we have a bold vision. Like you are, if you're an investment banker, you get a Bloomberg terminal, right? And I know there's some competition there now, but that's really what the mainstay has been for a long time. We want to be that for elected representatives. The moment you get elected, IndiGov is the tool that you need in order to do your job. And it comes with a lot of things that not only help you be better at constituent communication, but a variety of other things that are kind of tangential to that. And so we see a significant amount of expansion potential in the future from a feature density perspective. I'm a feature guy. I'm a designer. I'm a product guy. And so I think a lot about that. But ultimately, the measure of the company as to whether or not we are successful is if we meaningfully affect the user experience of democracy, the functioning of our government in a positive way that we can look at and say, we did that. That's how we know we will won. It's not liquidity events. It's not footprint. It's not revenue numbers. All of those things, to me, are means to an end, proxies to get us to where we need to go. The answer is, do we help this country? Do we help our democracy operate better and scale more effectively? Amazing. Alex, we're going to have to wrap. But before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, just go at Indigov. You can follow us on any platform. Definitely reach out to us on LinkedIn. We're always hiring, looking for really good folks. If you're an elected representative and you listen to this podcast and you want to take things to the next level and learn what other electeds across the country are doing, we always love to have a conversation with you. So, Brett, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the questions. And this is my favorite stuff to talk about. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no problem at all. Let's keep in touch and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks, Brett. Cheers. Cheers.